again, everyone. Thanks for tuning in and welcome to the program. My name is Jeffrey Kwame. I'm your host and executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. This podcast comes to you thanks to the generosity of our friends at Mountainside Treatment Center in Canaan, Connecticut, which provides individualized clinical, medical, and wellness services to those struggling with substance use and mental health disorders. Each treatment plan is structured through collaboration with the client, their family, and healthcare professionals to offer every client their best chance at long-term recovery. Mountainside is proud to be the only rehabilitation center in the state to be accredited by both CARP International and the Joint Commission. Mountainside is currently recruiting passionate and talented individuals for its Connecticut and New York locations. Every employee, regardless of position, plays a role in improving the lives of clients and their families. And if you're interested in joining the Mountainside team, please visit mountainside.com forward slash careers. And on behalf of the board of directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. A February study by Public Agenda, a nonpartisan research organization based in New York City, reported that Americans are united across partisan lines in seeing divisiveness as a major problem and believe it has made dealing with the pandemic and other critical challenges more difficult. It is also stated by the American Psychological Association that this deals directly with our own existential factors. With that being said, two things immediately come to mind. First, these same struggles affect our clients. And secondly, we often seek support for our own existential struggles, meaning significant counter-transference effects for us in the treatment space. However, given much of the acute nature of SUD counseling, is that the right place to address it? That's what we'll talk about today. My guest today is Sarah Benton, a licensed professional counselor and advanced alcohol and drug counselor. She's the co-owner of Benton Behavioral Health Consulting, clinical outreach manager for Aware Recovery Care Massachusetts, and the Strathmore House Transitional Sober Living for Men in Boston, Mass. She worked previously as the clinical director at Aware Recovery Care in-home addiction treatment in Connecticut, in private practice as an addiction therapist at Insight Counseling in Ridgefield, Connecticut, Turnbridge Extended Care in New Haven, Connecticut, and at the McLean Hospital at McLean Brook Transitional Living Program for dual diagnosis in Belmont, Mass. She's a seasoned international speaker, author of the book, Understanding the High-Functioning Alcoholic, and has been featured frequently in the media, including New York Times, and appears on, and has appeared on the Oprah Winfrey Show, the Today Show, the CBS Early Show, NPR, Sirius XM, and is a blogger for psychologytoday.com. Sarah, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Um, well, we can't offer you the exposure that Oprah and Today Show <laughs> or the New York Times, but ho- hopefully this conversation will motivate some of the folks that are listening. You know, I'd like to start with the existential nature of our pol- beliefs and politics in general. How do our political beliefs play into our own proverbial search for meaning? Um. Gosh, and it's funny because I think about how important it is for our clients to find meaning, right? Mm-hmm. And and that that can be the core, especially when you think about some of the clients that we work with have been through such um, trauma. Um, so it's important, however, so many of us come to the field with our own baggage and we hopefully are making sense of it along the way and not figuring it out through our clients, right? That we have our own process separate from that. Um, this year has posed so many existential uh, questions for people. It's given people maybe too much time to think, um, or in some cases, not enough. And it's changed us as a country. 
in many ways, um, I think that people were also seeking connection and meaning and our clients for some people when they were working remotely may have been their connection to the outside world. So I think this year was ripe for some of what we're talking about today. So it kind of fits into human nature um, in our, our efforts to seek out connection and support from like-minded people. And feel validated, yeah, um, in, in how we're feeling and not and not being conscious of it, right? Not being fully conscious of, of what we're playing out um, with our clients. And as somebody who deals with, with work, the workforce and with, with staff, much more so than clients now. I'm I'm very concerned, and I think a lot about issues around counter-transference mm-hmm. and how the individual is prepared to work with the folks in their charge. So I, I it's it's a really important focus for me. I um, agree. I mean, I've actually shifted um, from more direct care um, towards the beginning of of my work into overseeing staff, supervising staff, helping with um, trainings, and so this is something that. I'm really passionate about uh, in supporting people and also helping them to not feel shame from being human. But the point is to be talking about it. So, so if part of my connection to the larger world is through political ideology, and I mean more so the rhetoric than necessarily a party affiliation, do challenges to my belief system create that fight or flight mode that we often see? Mm. That this year, maybe. <laughs> um, so I've, you know, I don't know that I've personally lived through a time that's been more um, politically charged. I do. I have talked to people older than me who said that the 60s were a time of political strife and um, just, of you know, with the Vietnam War and with um, assassinations and the civil rights movement and the women's movement. So I didn't live through that. Right. Um, I did have a point of comparison, but it has helped me to get historical context for what we're going through. And so people in my generation that are in this field, I don't know that we've ever been through something like this where um, politics could be a deal breaker in friendships that um, that a pandemic has happened. Right. And that there's political charge behind that and the passion that people feel either way. Right. On either side. Um, partisan wise, when a client comes in and is, you know, venting, because if we think about it, our clients assume it's a safe space to talk because maybe within their family, they don't have anyone they can talk to about this. So they come into therapy, they're venting about it because it's become something that does evoke emotion. And then the therapist themselves may have differing views and instinctually that fight or flight or that adrenaline or whatever it is that they would have if a friend were talking to them happens within the session. So what I guess the question is, what do we do with that? And I think that's an important question because it's going to come up. We, uh, our clients watch and read and hear the same things that we do and develop their own opinions around that. Um, and I think that that in itself, when it's brought forward in the session, creates significant issues around counter-transference, whether we agree with what uh, they believe right. or whether we disagree. The counter-transference occurs, period. There's no question about it. Well, I think we have a negative view, right? So counter-transference often is, oh, it's a negative feeling that arises about a client, right? But it could also, to your point, be a positive feeling. It could be a feeling of camaraderie or agreement um, that is not necessarily appropriate in a therapeutic context. So to your point. 
And if you talk to my friend Tom Baird out of Philadelphia, he'll tell you countertransfer, it's effective use of countertransference is a fascinating and amazing treatment tool. If it you is, your own. actually. So you mentioned in your blog in Psychology Today that you noticed a therapist expression of strong political views in conversations. You see it in discussion groups, social media outlets, and they tend to be very partisan. What happens in those, those social media entities if somebody expresses a, a dissenting view? It doesn't go over well. So I, I, we have to be honest about where we are. Okay, so we live in Connecticut. We live in New England. Um, the there tends to be left leaning politics here, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and that's just a fact. It's it's not really an opinion. If you look at the numbers, like we tend to vote Democrat in these in this state and others in New England. So what I've seen in workplaces in person, right, and also online is a reflection of that is the assumption that everybody is in agreement. So people will post things with the assumption that everybody in that group agrees with them and has the same view as them. And because that's a majority here, there's sometimes no consideration that there's a minority opinion, right? And there also can be like a feeling of getting ganged up on or of being judged for having a dissenting view. The problem with that is if that's what, you know, people in the healthcare profession or therapists, coaches are saying to each other in their spare time, I have to wonder what they're thinking with clients who share a differing view. I I was reading another study that up to 62% of Americans have lost or left a friend, Mm -hmm. a relationship of some sort over political views. So to think that that's not at risk with the individuals we serve, if they offer differing views than ours, um, we'd be foolish to assume that. Um, you know, right. One of my favorite things to talk about, again, is counter-transference. I love talking about it. I love uh, uh, learning from it. And one day that one way that it tends to play out commonly is what you just said, that clinicians often believe that clients hold the same view as them. For me, I talk about that as a, a false belief that our experience is universal. And we well, had a former, clients. I actually had a former colleague who um, she would call it the fallacy of attribution that you attribute the way you think you assume other people are thinking the same way. And she was so spot on. Yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. And and I talk about it in in training events and things uh, about part of the credibility issues of our field that we often believe with the way we see it is universal. But I really like the fallacy of of attribution. It sounds uh, a lot more professional, a lot less personal than we're just thinking our opinions are universal. Uh, Right. And that, and I, and that again, um, if people are just spending time with people that agree with them, which is, is their right. The problem is when you make that assumption about your clients and, and I think our clients make it about us. I mean, I've had that actually happen to me, um, where clients make assumptions about, about my political affiliation. And, you know, I have ways that I've figured out to manage this during this particular past couple of years that have been really 
you know, it has been something that comes up like to deny it is to say that you're, you know, really not being like we talked about mindfulness. Um, you know, we're not being mindful of, of what's going on in this heated political climate. Like our clients are making assumptions about us. They want to feel that they're in a safe place to talk. Right. But they also, in some ways they want to feel that you agree with them. So they're there's also a pull, right? So there's a pull from our clients to feel heard, understood, and validated. And that doesn't stop. That that doesn't stop with just, you know, about way of life or sobriety. They want to find out if we're sober, right? All those things, but it's also politics because that's a, that's a probably the hottest topic these past few years, right? I mean, let's think about coronavirus and COVID has been one thing, but there's so many political, um, cobwebs that are attached to that. And you can't, it's really hard to separate them out. And just because I don't agree with something a client may say, doesn't mean I can't validate that is their experience. Uh, Validating what, you know, I think we often misunderstand that it's validating doesn't mean agreement, but we, it's that this is how somebody feels and they're entitled to that opinion. And, and, you don't have to agree with it. Just saying, I hear what you're saying. I understand that's what you believe. That's great. Maybe we all need to practice some radical acceptance. <laughs> oh, please. I'll be bringing you back to my internship <laughs> days of DBT. <laughs> so <clears throat> this type of interaction, the failure to manage our own or recognize even before we manage our own counter-transference um, and to focus on the transference effect of what the client responds to us. What kind of problems does this create to the therapeutic relationship? Well, it depends how the therapist handles it, right? So it could cause no problem and it could be used appropriately, especially if that therapist is able to process it outside the session. Um, So it can go one of two ways, right? It can go um, in a way that the person is, the therapist is able to redirect, is able to validate, is able to, like you said, find meaning. I mean, I, I have figured out some, techniques along the way in the past couple of years, um, to, uh, to help keep things clinically relevant, right? Because you can certainly digress on topics, um, when you're talking to another person uh, and they are people sitting before us, Mm -hmm. but really it's about, okay. So if a person is having a lot of problems, they come into your session and they're stressing out about a particular candidate, a particular, um, fear of a policy of COVID policy of all of those pieces. Well, what is it that we can support them in, in calming their brain down? Like, how can we look at this? Okay. They're in fight or flight. They're, they're panicking, regardless of if we agree with what they're panicking over. Right. Um, can we support them in decreasing their social media usage in mm-hmm. how much they're letting into their brains? Like, can we treat their brains as an organ that they need to feed healthy things to. And it's very apparent when people have sat there all day long on Facebook, getting pissed off at their friends, regardless of what side they're on. It's our job to support them in self-care and in stepping back. So I guess I always think of it as, okay, here's, let's not get caught in the weeds. Let's look at the macro issue here Mm -hmm. and let's talk bigger picture. Um, And it seems to be easier in that way to get out of the actual content and getting stuck in content with our clients. And that's where I think people may 
get stuck either because they're agreeing with and they want to just sit there and kind of go on and on with that person or because they disagree and they're trying to on some level, which is, you know, from a, we are in a position of authority, right? We are, people look up to us. We have to understand that we, we are in a power position um, that on some level, if we're trying to change their mind, that we have to be cautious of that. It's not our job to be doing political advocacy work in therapy sessions. If we're not aware, <clears throat> excuse me, if, if we're not aware of that power differential or if we deny it in the most extreme cases, we are at great risk to abuse it. When yes. we recognize that the differential exists, we can learn how to manage that. Uh, because whether we say I'm just like my clients or not, we aren't, and they see us as different. Yes. And so everything we say may be interpreted as a suggestion, um, which certainly is another clinical uh, issue that we can work out in, in things. But it, you're right. I think it creates a problem if, if we don't pay attention to the power differential and keep the politics out of it. And if, you know, and if, if somebody's going to press you and it's something, you know, and they really want to get into the weeds with you about it, right? You have a right to set that boundary and, and just to very, you know, again, you don't have to, you don't have to be defensive about it, but just to say, you know, it, I really would like to keep political content out of this. I think the big picture part, like we don't have to avoid the topic completely, right? Like, oh, that sounds political. Let's not talk about it. It's not to that level. It's the content. It's not the effect and the emotion. We want to help them with the emotion, the effect it's having on them and the big picture of it and what the meaning behind it, right? And how to interact with their family. If they're, if they're, oh, you know, they're scared to go to a family event, 4th of July, because they don't want to get into political fights. Like it's our job to support them in figuring out coping skills and inter, interpersonal tools to, to deal with that, but not get caught in the actual content. Right. It begun again becomes an existential issue when we start talking about well, hey, tell me a little bit how you handle folks that don't agree with you. Exactly. Let's talk about how do you get along or how do you work with folks who are different than you or you don't know because that's a very very important life skill right. that we often ignore because we look too much for agreement in in many cases from uh, the folks we work with that they're not allowed a dissenting opinion. Completely. Um, so I, I don't want, I guess I'm not suggesting this like phobic reaction where we're just like, oh my gosh, I can't talk about this at all. Like we're not at all, but use it therapeutically, not for your own validation or, you know, and that's where, that's where we have to be aware of ourselves and behind every statement we're making, consider your intent when it's a hot topic, slow your speech down consider the intent of what you're saying and how, and if there's any clinical benefit for your client. It, and it's, you're right. It doesn't have to be a knee jerk reaction. It should no. be well thought out. All of our interactions should be well thought out. And we don't have to be the same. And we give that non-conditioned response. I'm going to throw DBT skills back at you. <laughs> <laughs> we give the response that they're not conditioned to, which is, Hey, I got to be honest, talking politics in an environment, it, it, it's not really a, uh, something I'm comfortable with. We all have personal opinions. And then if they say, well, why don't you want to talk about your opinion? Because you're different than mine. Saying, well, let's talk about that. And it's, right. it's not the content. It's the process. Yes. it's the So you're actually helping that person interpersonally by 
saying, so say I had a differing view, how would you handle that? But not getting into the details of your view. There's an underlying thing here that you mentioned in your blog as well. It's, it's the lack of appropriate clinical supervision, in my opinion, around a lot of things, but specifically around how to handle that. But there's not really an excuse to not be prepared because this has been thrust upon us for a long, long time. Right. Partisanship <laughs> hasn't been around since 2016. It's been around forever. It's just we're seeing it heightened. Well, it's more of a common topic. And and so I don't know that it was something that we were trained as much around it. It's something that I don't hear that many people talking about what we're talking about in terms of that aspect of it. My concerns with supervision is also that people in the positions of supervision aren't making assumptions that everybody agrees. This is like the discussion we're having in a nonpartisan way about like what's the meaning in the big picture and the teachable or the clinical like um, moment is really where the supervision comes in. Um, Because what can happen when there's no clients involved in staff conversations and staff meetings is again, some of that group think and the assumption that everybody's in agreement and not having consideration. It doesn't matter if you got, if you agree or disagree with your coworkers, there's an appropriate way to handle this clinically period. And I, th- I think it's something that we have to work on. And that's why I like group supervision for topics like this because yeah. of the counter-transference uh, effects that come about and that you get assistance from your peers and how they may manage it or what they see. I always want to know what somebody else sees in me that I'm missing because then I can can change it. And odds are there's somebody in that group that would have a differing view, whereas with individual, there's just fewer numbers. But I think in the group, um, you can also start to play out, you know, group dynamics are so interesting, but, but some things can get played out. And it's also important for a supervisor to see how the group is interacting around this topic. And we can't lose the, the sight that what happens in a treatment group is also happening in our supervision group because the development process is fairly similar. The three major theories of group development are all kind of in this agreement. They use different terms, um, but they're all in kind of agreement of what happens in a group. And as Yalom called the, the recapitulation of the family group is happening in those situations. And, in a, and so we learn from ourselves, from each other, how we manage these these difficult situations. Um, so I, I'm a, I measured in group work in social work. I love groups. I love the process of groups. And I love what groups do that we don't know that they do. That we're not well, there's a power there. I mean, there's just a power there that we can't recreate one on one. That's just a fact, right? Exactly. You, it, you just can watch it and, and, and human nature and comment on it. Um, you make mention of the importance of mindfulness to handle opposing political views of clients. We can't expect them to be mindful. Mm-hmm. Um, it's nice if they are, but we can't expect anyone to be mindful. Um, but we have to learn to do that for ourselves. And I, I consider it part of emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're ready, prepared for what's going to happen. Can you expand on what you mean in terms of mindfulness in this type of situation? Sure. So 
As a clinician, I feel like a lot of the work I do over time, right? Not in the beginning so much, but over time, it starts to become more rote and um, you trust your gut and your there's a flow to the way you're speaking and the way that you're working with clients. When a topic such as um, politics or religion or just things that are, right? I mean, we can put those all kind of into the same category, although um, I don't know that for some people, the religious topic has been more, or spirituality is more something that they've grown accustomed to talking about. But what I notice in myself, and I can only speak to it because I, I don't know other people's process, but I'll notice a slowing down in, in my mind where I'm being more deliberate in my speech, which I don't feel like I have to be all the time, right? I don't I don't feel like as a therapist, I have to measure every single word at this point in my career, maybe when I was like greener, but I don't. So, so there's a, a, almost like a metacognition that's going on, a mindfulness and awareness of, of where I'm going and what I'm saying at a more heightened level. When I know that this is a topic that I want to be cautious around and I want to handle appropriately. Um, So I'm aware of my mind, my thinking of what I'm saying of how I'm feeling. So I just, there's a slowing down, although the client may not pick up on that internally, I'm feeling, um, an experience of awareness of where I'm going and what I'm saying and being much more intentional and deliberate, um, because I don't want to just be conversational as I would with a friend, because that's, this just not the time and place. So, um, so there's a bit of fighting our instinct, right? There's a bit of, of going against what may normally just blurt out of our mouths if we were just talking with a friend or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and so therefore I, we do have to be more self-aware and, and slow down in some way uh, so that we can be more measured. Yeah, it's that emotional regulation that we kind of have to practice and it becomes a modeling issue. We're modeling that for the folks that we serve. And a, a simple technique that I was taught was to consciously take a breath in and out before I responded to what anybody said because it gave my brain a second to let the emotional response go away. Uh And then ultimately that breath isn't conscious anymore. It just happens because you've kind of trained yourself to do that. It's removing yourself from the emotionality and thinking rational. That's our job. Our job isn't to react emotionally. Right. And if, and again, our job is also not to be perfect. So I think on the other end, if we feel that maybe in another session we had we had responded emotionally or we had involved our, ourself in someone's therapy. I, I think that we owe it to our clients to show uh, that we can take responsibility for that. And so I really do encourage people to role model that almost like an amends process, right? Yep. Where we say, you know what, like I got a little caught off guard or whatever it may be. And this is not about perfection. We are humans, but it is important to not just let those things go. If we feel that we were, you know, violating some type of a boundary in that way, or that in retrospect, we think about that session and we're like, gosh, I don't really feel that good about the direction it went, even if it were in agreement, right? So that's where the part that's interesting is even in the agreement part, we can still, that then opens up the door for more political conversations. And so we have to somehow, do we set that boundary if we've already engaged in it? And the ability to to apologize for what you perceive as, as, or even what they tell you that you made a mistake. Again, that's that non-conditioned response, which teaches people 
it, it lessens their guard. They they have to think about what they're going to respond and say instead of just reacting. You know, we're changing everything about the situation. And if we could do that in our conversations with others around politics instead of trying to talk over everybody, um, although that makes for good television, it doesn't really accomplish anything. Doesn't make for great therapy, though. <laughs> Let me play devil's advocate for a minute. Um, despite a recent training focus nationally, the workforce is uh, under underskilled in the practice of mindfulness in the clinical session. And you and I talked a little bit about that yeah. offline. About and I think it's just a matter of perspective. I, my perspective is very different than your perspective, and and it, we learn from each other around that. So, do you have any thoughts on why we're not really uh, skilled in terms of mindfulness for ourselves in the clinical session? Well, I think I, the reason, and we talked about it offline, part of it is I was trained at the, like, I was trained at um, um, the Mind Body Institute. So it was all about those things. So I think I take that for granted. Um, I don't know how much graduates, right? So I think, wait a second, a lot of my training was outside of the academic setting in some ways. So I take that for granted and I forget, but I think sometimes what can happen is um, places, first of all, there's there's techniques uh, that trend and when something's out of trend or um, there's, it's not the, the newest and greatest, sometimes it, it falls out of, out of the view of people and seems less relevant. I don't know that mindfulness will ever not be relevant, right? But it may not be maybe also people perceive it as rather simplistic. And so what is there to talk about and what is there to train about? Uh, because there's these newer techniques that are so complicated. You, you can barely do them because they're so complicated, mm -hmm. but, um, but it's really a foundation. It's also how you were trained. I mean, I think some of the more medical model, clinical model, um, I know certain graduate programs have more holistic and do more alternative therapies. They're more apt to pull the mindfulness training in than a much more uh, clinical model. So sometimes it's how you were trained, where you did your uh, in your internships at. And I just happened to do them at places that emphasize that. And I got and I did a lot of trainings through um, that through those programs, the continuing ed credits were all through that. So mm -hmm. I take it for granted, but yeah, I, I think it, there's trends. I mean, you know, right now I hear, you know, it's like motivational interviewing, motivational interviewing, whatever. I mean, there's just, it goes in waves, you know, um, there's been just through the years, you know, DBT, 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 right. Um, but mindfulness is ironically, it's a module right in DBT. So I think automatically kind of a cool thing is that where there's DBT, there's hopefully some mindfulness. Right. Um, but it's also, something that is, it can be in, integrated along with everything else. Like, it's almost like without mindfulness, how do you do any of the other, how do you do anything else? If you don't have, if you're not being mindful in your sessions, how do you apply the other pieces? That makes an interesting point that I hadn't thought of. Um, I think people are often mindful, but aren't conscious of the mindfulness of the experience of what they're doing. Um, skilled clinicians, just kind of do that and don't think about it. Um, and part of my question, I think, goes to because there's a, there is a lot of mindfulness training in 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 the field, but it's more around that idea of self care. And let me put it in a way that that's not going to be popular: inflated self care. We focus so much on the top of the iceberg 
of going to the massage and getting or going to the spa or going kayaking or things instead of what's below the surface. And that's managing our emotional responses and things like that. The same stuff that we that is taught in DBT really affects and, and can be helpful for all of us. But, so we don't learn how to be mindful necessarily in session. That Well, you just gave me a great idea. That's a great training topic. Thank you. I want to cut. <laughs> <laughs> no, but so it's like mindful, you know, mindful application in therapy, right? Like we're, we're sitting here, you know, going on a nature walk and being mindful, but we're not necessarily bringing that back into our sessions with our clients. Right. I think is what you're saying. And, um, and also self-care has different levels. Some of, but some of the self-care for clinicians isn't like, it's not just that you're talking about just the um, kind of a band-aid, right? Like band-aid self-care yeah. in a sense yeah. where it's not really like you go back to work and you feel the same way. It's like you take a vacation, you're burnt out and you go back and you are still burnt out. <laughs> yeah. you know, Cause I bristle at the idea of, of our self-care interrupting the client's recovery process. So, oh my goodness, I just had such a difficult session. I've got to cancel my next one. Well, that affects an individual who's coming to us for help instead of you being mindful and using emotional intelligence with that client that can tend to present difficult problems and expecting that. And if you're aware of that and you're understanding, you know, how am I going to handle it? You're not burned out at the end of that session. Now it's going to happen emergencies and things, but I think we can manage it. We teach the skills. The skills are taught of mindfulness. But we often get stuck in thinking it only has one application. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, it's it's a tool that should just be almost eventually built into your brain and you check in and out of it. It's not like you live floating like Buddha somewhere, but right. that you're able to tap in and tap out when when you feel it's needed. It's We should be prepared. Part of that mindfulness is being prepared for every session, whatever it may bring. We know that if we have some bad news that we're going to share or that it's a client who tends to respond um, either angrily or on the opposite end is too pleased to hear. We have to manage our own stuff around that so that we're always being the professional. And we're going to slip and we're going to make mistakes. That's and it. We're going to have to apologize. And that's fine. I think that's and, and I think it's a great learning for clients. Yes, it is. We're human. One of the things that you've alluded to during during our conversation is, is as we kind of finish up, is boundaries. You talk about boundaries, both stated and kind of non-verbal mm-hmm. boundaries, um, to not have these politically fueled discussions with clients. Um, what are some interesting ways that that you have or that you come up with to, to set boundaries? Right. So you don't have to sit there and say, I'm setting a boundary. And again, unless you get pushed and pushed where you have to actually, right. So some of it's just um, like taking the micro and making it macro, right? So they're sitting there and they're going on and on about how angry they are that they just sat there and they can't believe that all these people are posting these ridiculous things on Facebook and they're going on and on and they're so heated, but how can we, why don't we get curious, right? Like how much time let's now let's try to figure out the social media thing. Like what's going on here? Um, the client that continues to do the same thing over and over again, expecting different results, right? They engage in frustrating conversations and then they come into therapy and vent. So trying to take the big picture of the root cause, like less the topic, more the behavior. Like what is it that you're doing that's setting your, yourself up to be so frustrated? Also, um, being curious about their 
um, their emotion, less the topic, more how they're feeling and where they're feeling it and how it's impacting them. If they're in recovery, like there were, there was a surge in substance use disorders over the past year. Okay. There was a surge in mental health issues. I mean, you can't even get a a, practically get an appointment with a therapist at this point. So without a wait list. So what is going on for people, right? I mean, what is it that's changed and shifted? And isn't that worth a discussion on a bigger level of what was their relationship to politics years ago and what is it now and why? Less the content. Is it because it's they're they're just on their phone all day because they've not been working for a year? Like what what is it? And so how can we support them in getting themselves to more of an equilibrium. It doesn't mean that they have to not have these views. It's just the ongoing exposure. I've noticed, I mean, I've a lot of people, you hear them saying, I had to take a cleanse from um, conversations, from the news, from um, social media. And so, so some of the strategy is looking at what can we support them in, in terms of um, stress management, right? In terms of helping them to, to regulate better. But some of that is, by stop the flood, stop the flood of information. Um, the other piece is, you know, within the family unit, right? Can't this be, I mean, have they always felt on the outside of their family? If they feel like, is this just yet another thing that they disagree with their family over? How We can get into a great conversation about family dynamics, right? So using politics as a way to get into other areas of their lives that maybe in a sense it's like symbolic and that they're playing out other parts of themselves through politics. And, and I think part of the simple reality of this, and it's a very complex uh, discussion what we're having, but the, sim- the simplicity is that rush of emotion that, that people feel that our clients experience puts them at greater risk of using. Totally. So what we want to do is kind of use boundaries to manage that emotion. And sometimes the boundary is just as simple as pointing out what you see. Yeah. Saying, as you're saying this, I'm watching you shift in your chair and you're white knuckling it on the thing that, wow, did you know that? That really, And just having a conversation again, that ultimately takes it off to, well, this person pisses me off or this. But we can get it away from that just by pointing out behavior and what we're seeing. And we can redirect it. And I'm not going to lie. There have been times that people, clients are on a rant and it's going nowhere. And it's my job to shift it to something that's actually solution-based. You know, I understand. I hear, I completely hear you're pissed off about X, Y, Z, but X, Y, Z are probably not changing anytime soon. Right. So, I mean, that's our job. Like we could sit there and get paid to listen to somebody rant for an hour, but I don't feel like I'm doing my job. I'm sorry. I had a therapist years ago that she would just say, how, do, how are you feeling? And then let you just rant for an hour. I'm sorry. I just don't want that kind of therapy, <laughs> you know? My clinical experience is mostly working with individuals with uh, better indigent and the problems um, are things like, well, how do I pay the rent? How do I do this? And that even when we're working on just basic skills to manage those emotions, I can't be so frustrated and angry when I'm asking my landlord for an extension of on uh, things because they're not going to respond well to that most likely. So how do I manage that emotion? The stuff that I'm feeling from politics is a shows what my triggers are, one of my triggers to my over response emotionally. Um, and we know that that's a protect 
for them in the world that they live in, it's a protective factor, right? I can keep people at bay if I, I respond, but we also have that, that connection for individuals. It's the, you know, the old uh, borderline personality thing. Uh, I hate you, don't leave me. Mm-hmm. We're creating space for safety. So that's really what we're talking about as well. That's safe, creating a safe space for themselves um, without an onrush of emotions that they cannot manage, right? Never get too high, never get too low. Uh, it, it's a lot of work and I think it's fascinating. It, yeah. I mean, I think we can, we can use this, like you said, we can use this therapeutically if we do it properly. Right. If it, if it doesn't turn into, um, into your own therapy session in some ways, I think that this has been such a strange time. I mean, one of the, the simple strategies, I don't know if it was a strategy, it was just conversationally was, you know, client was going on and on about something political and I acknowledged and validated like this is just a very chaotic time politically. Like let's, let's just, it is, it doesn't matter what side you're on. This has been a very politically charged time. Let's just, I can acknowledge that we can talk about that. Right. And, and, you know, what was interesting is because I acknowledged it, he sort of went on to something else. So by sitting there perfectly silent and ignoring the topic that, but by just validate it. I mean, it's true for all of us, right? As, as at least in the United States, it's true for all of us that if you've been paying attention and you have an opinion, it's been a politically charged time. Fact. And I think so, we have to, how we respond to it. Right. Well, that's your belief. You have a right to believe that, which somebody hears is saying, oh, you think I'm full of shit. Instead of saying, I, I understand this is difficult. You're, yeah. you're experiencing what a lot of people are. It's crazy times. The reframe is incredibly important, but the language we use, we've got to check ourselves on the language we use. With the right, because we can come across as condescending, right? Yep. So, but I mean, I was just like, it is just, I, it's just been a crazy time, period. You know, like, and we're, and so I feel like it diffused their, their feelings of frustration. But, but the other part is, I think we could get even more specific in, in what it is that is getting triggered in them about it, right? Like what, what is it about X, Y, Z that they're so heated about particular political topic or particular um, politician or whatever? Like, what is it about that? That is what, and they're having transference on that issue, right? Or they're having counter-transference on that issue. No, sorry. Now I'm getting myself confused. (laughs) They're, They're having transference onto that and and what is and what could we you know is it feeling controlled is it they grew up in a really controlled controlled hi- household and there are certain things that are bringing that up for them so how can we use it's almost a blessing when our clients display emotion dysregulation because when they come to therapy and they're just so perfect and everything's put together and oh yeah the week was great like there's just not a lot to work with there right so this is actually a blessing because we're seeing people kind of a mess over the past year in some ways. And we actually have some some material to work with. I, I think based on what you're saying, we're recognizing that if they're going to, if somebody has a significant emotional response to something political, that most significant emotional response is going to occur with something else as well. It's very rarely can somebody just be such a laser focus that that's the only thing that they get aggravated uh, right. or, or excited about. This can't be about. the first thing of this theme 
that has gotten you unhinged, right? And there's almost, you know, in some ways, and we don't talk about it much, but there's a psychodynamic um, bend to all of this, mm-hmm. object relations. And so, you know, we're, I think we tend in addiction treatment to be very behavioral based, but, um, but I'm, uh, this year I've actually been, been spending a little bit more time studying and I'm seeing more the meaning making and the underlying pieces and the counter-transference and the transference really we're we're integrating more dynamic work in, in than we even realize sometimes. I agree. And I think it's in substance use disorder treatment. So much of what we do is focused on the acute, which is important and it's necessary. Yeah, we got it. But um, if we, as, as substance use disorder professionals, recognize there's something else going on we have to be able to re- seek help and say you know i may be done with what i can do with this individual right this is yes. beyond, what's going on next is beyond the scope let's see what they want to do next and, and work with them but it's i don't have to manage every single issue because i have i'm not good at everything i don't know everything just because my license says i can do it doesn't mean i should without the competence Agreed. And you know what? I think there can come a point and I've, you know, I've worked more with, I've seen it more with recovery, um, with recovery coaches, but where the countertransference was just so strong, they were almost unable to do their job. And I don't know that it was the best care for that client. So I think we also have to have enough humility to say, I've worked through this in, you know, supervision. I have, you know, tried this strategy, I've tried that strategy. And I constantly dread seeing this client for X, Y, Z reason. And I'm not giving them fair care. Maybe there would be a better therapist out there for this person. And we, we need to be humbled to know, right. We need to be able to say like, I'm not, I may not be able to work with every client and that's okay. Part of that comes from our own irrational thoughts that countertransference is a bad thing. And I'm afraid to bring that up to my supervisor because yes. my supervisor, my clinical supervisor may also be my administrative supervisor who has a role in my raise and I don't yes. know if I'm struggling and that whole dynamic, which is, is a mess. You're right. We get caught and this, up in our own false beliefs related to emotion. You're totally right. And, and, you know, if, and I, and I also, as, as a supervisor, if this came up, with that particular person five other times, I would be like, okay, well, we got to work on, you know what I mean? Like we've got, but when there, you can tell when there is just something going on there um, that is almost not fixable and it's getting in the way of the care. And we have to be aware of that as supervisors. I think that again, to the crux of how important supervision is overall. Sarah, before we finish, anything you'd like to add, anything you'd like, our listeners to know if you got something to sell you can do that now too <laughs> uh, my selling days are over okay um no i'm just kidding um no i just i appreciate uh that jeff honed in on this topic it's something i've uh felt really passionately about through the past couple of years and i appreciate the forum to have the discussion about it because um i think the biggest thing i want to share is that um I've noticed that when I have differences in political opinion with people that in the end, I actually have more um, in common. We actually, if we just slow down, have things more than that we agree with than disagree with. Um, But for some reason, we've been pegged against each other. So uh, I just I guess I ask that everybody 
try to find the commonality between us. And you'll actually find that we agree on more points than we disagree on. And that we, um, we on sort of the ground level, not like the large political level, but as people and friends and loved ones need to see each other for humans and try to find the connection again. And I think part of it is recognition for me. Um, when I have a disagreement with somebody politically, um, I always think of where, for my own well-being, where they got that opinion. And they say, well, I heard it from, depending on which side you're on, I heard it from uh, Rachel Maddow, or <laughs> I heard it from Tucker Carlson. Right. I remember, have to remember, okay, there's somebody's feeding them the information that they want to hear. So I'm not going to engage myself in a big uh argument when their beliefs are being reinforced by who they're listening to and it, both sides do it um regardless of what one side thinks of the other both sides do it uh, it's entertainment it's not news uh, and we need to yeah. you know, be mindful for me of that yes and um you know the, at the end of the day we you know we have to create the peace we want in our own minds so that we can do our work we have to I think as therapists, even more than the average person, we need to be mindful of like a diet. What, I mean, what do you feed your body? What do you feed your mind? And I, I have been saying this, like it's been my battle cry throughout the pandemic. What are you letting into your consciousness? What are you feeding yourself? Is it hurting you? Do you feel like crap after you listen to X, Y, Z? Um, and you know, what are the healthier things you could be focusing on? And that's our responsibility. So when we go into sessions, we're in a more balanced state. That is our professional responsibility. That's a nice point to finish on. It's what we feed ourselves with, how we nourish our, our mind, body, and spirit really is ultimately how we're going to experience things and, and how we're going to uh, yes. respond. Um, that's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. I'd like to thank Sarah for joining us. And I hope this discussion encourages you to learn and think more. Uh, we again extend our gratitude to Mountainside Treatment Center for their generous support. We here at the CCB appreciate everyone who's listening. And don't forget to follow us on Podbeans, iTunes, Amazon, or your favorite podcast application. Sarah, have a great day, and we'll catch everybody next time. Thank you. Thank you.